With that, let's pray. We'll dive into Psalm 46 together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, we need you. Every hour we need you. There's not a waking moment in our life when we don't need your presence, when we don't need your word speaking truth into our lives, where we don't need the redemptive work of Jesus, our Savior. There's not an hour that we need, have that we don't need the work of you, Holy Spirit, in our lives. We know and confess that you are the Lord, the giver of life. You proceed from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, you are worshipped and glorified, Holy Spirit. And we also believe you have spoken through the prophets. You've spoken through the pages of Scripture. And there is not one line, not one word, not one letter that was not inspired by your supernatural power. And we want to know your word more. So Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, impress upon our hearts the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and the great hope that we have, the fortress we have in him, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, during Labor Day weekend, uh, my family and I, we usually have this tradition that we formed where the week after Labor Day, we're going to go up to Breckenridge and we're going to spend time as a family together with my in-laws. And this is probably about four years ago. We went up to Breckenridge and Hannah and I enjoyed a date night. Uh, the in-laws stayed back. They watched our kids. We went and had Thai food out in Breckenridge. And that night at about midnight, I woke up feeling a little bit funny and um, by about three o'clock, I was just in so much agony. My stomach was in such pain that I couldn't fall asleep. So I left the bedroom. I went out into the living space and I did what everybody does when they're sick. I watched infomercials and then watched documentaries that you otherwise wouldn't watch on PBS. Well, there was this fantastic documentary on, which I didn't expect. Because remember, it was right after Labor Day. It was going into September 11th weekend. And because of that, they were airing these documentaries about stories of people as they experienced September 11th, 2001. And there was one documentary that stood out. It was about the Pentagon. You know, I knew plenty about the Twin Towers and, you know, all of the stories around that. This was the first one that I've heard of folks who were at the Pentagon on that day. And there was one man who was a first responder. I believe he was a paramedic. And he had arrived on the scene after that first plane had crashed into the Pentagon. And he ran into the Pentagon trying to save people performing emergency medical procedures on some people. And he worked his way from the outside of the Pentagon all the way to the inner courtyard of the Pentagon. And I didn't know this, but because the Pentagon is such a fortress and there's security clearances and long corridors and kind of secret passageways, it can take 25 minutes just to get from the outside of the Pentagon to the inner courtyard. And this man makes it to the center. He's in the middle of the courtyard, and he hears over the radio that there's a plane inbound heading for Washington, D.C., and he's trying to put together all the pieces. Remember, there's mass confusion. He's trying to put together the pieces. He thought, well, there were two planes that went into the World Trade Center. There must be two planes that are heading for the Pentagon. And he's doing the calculations in his mind. He's thinking, this is only 10 minutes away. I know it's going to take longer than that for me to get out of the Pentagon. There's no way that I'm going to be able to escape in time. So what he decided to do was... 
He starts scrambling to tell people to get out, to sprint, to find cover, coverage. He's clearing nearby areas. There's all this mass confusion. And then with about five minutes having passed, he hears in the distance this dull roar of a distant plane. And it's getting closer and closer. The noise is getting louder and louder. And he's looking around. He finally decides he's going to look around and kind of get his bearings. And he looks about, about the two dozen people who are surrounded with him. And he notices that there's panic on people's faces. And in that moment, he did the only thing he knew to do. He dropped to his knees. He lifted his hands to heaven, closed his eyes, and started praying to the only one he knew could save him in that situation, and it was Almighty God. Just as an aside, by the way, true spirituality really comes out in moments like that, don't they? I mean, after all, in that situation, that's not really the appropriate time to start doing hot yoga in the middle of the courtyard. Right, Because you know in that moment there is only one who is able, only one God who is actually able to save you in that situation. And no amount of inward spirituality or contemplation or meditation is ever going to help you in that situation. Only God is strong enough to help people on the brink of death. And as that sound started getting louder and louder overhead, it was becoming almost unbearable. He heard it reaching right over the courtyard. So he decides at that moment to open his eyes and look up and he sees this plane flying over the Pentagon with the words on the side of it that said, U.S. Navy. It was a plane that was not coming to destroy. It was a plane coming to protect. And you know, you have all these people that are around him and he finally decides to look down and see what they're doing and what do you know they're doing the exact same thing that he is doing either with their faces on the ground praying to God or on their knees with their hands lifted to heaven praying to almighty God the God of the universe and you think about it right here are these people in the safest fortress, the most advanced compound, in the wealthiest nation with the most advanced military in the world. And these people realize, maybe for the first time, this isn't going to work. No compound, no fortress, no human form of protection is enough. At that moment, they realized all of those means of protection are insufficient. At they, that moment, they realized there is only one who is powerful enough to do anything about that situation, and it's the almighty God of the universe. You know, scholars surmise that Psalm 46, the psalm we're about to read, Psalm 46 was written in a similar situation. It was at a time when Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah was under heavy siege from a foreign military power at a time when the walls of Jerusalem are under attack, a time when all forms of human protection were in jeopardy. And one particular event matches that in the Old Testament. It's one particular event in the history of God's people. And it happened around the year 700 AD when the Syrian empire, the Assyrian empire, started marching south, led by King Sennacherib. And 
As King Sennacherib is marching south, he's conquering city after city after city on his way, ultimately to Egypt to expand his kingdom. And as the years tick by, Sennacherib's forces close in on Jerusalem and Judah. They decimated Damascus in Syria in the year 732 B.C. They captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 720. And then finally, in the year 712... Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege work around the city walls in an effort to overthrow the city of Jerusalem. There's a fascinating scene. If, if you know the story, it comes from 2 Kings. When the Assyrian army is laying siege work to Jerusalem, well, Sennacherib sends out this man named the Rabshakeh. He's like the field general. He sends him out to go and speak to the people of Jerusalem. So the king of Jerusalem, Hezekiah, sends out a peaceful sort of band of people to go and speak with the Rabshakeh. Well, they're meeting outside Jerusalem's gates, talking back and forth, seeing if there might be any middle ground to find here. And the Rabshakeh is saying, who do you guys think you are? You really think that you're going to withstand the army of Assyria, you think you're going to withstand Sennacherib and his power? And the envoy from Judah, they start saying, because the, the Rabshakeh was speaking in Hebrew, they were afraid everybody in the city could start hearing the mocking and the torment and, and all the taunting from the Rabshakeh. So they say, stop, please don't speak to us in Hebrew. Speak to us in Aramaic. We know Aramaic, you know Aramaic. That's what we'll speak in. That way the people inside the city, they don't overhear us. And the Rabshakeh says, oh no, those people need to hear it. After all, the people in that city, because of your decisions, the people in that city, they are the ones who are, quote, doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. And then he shouts in Hebrew so that everybody could hear it. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of you his own fig tree. And each of you will drink the water of his own cistern and do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you. By saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of, nobody knows how to pronounce that, Hena and Iva? Have they, delivered, uh, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands. At that moment, you have to realize that the people, the people in Jerusalem, right? Hezekiah, all of the people, all of them at this point had to realize that this isn't going to work. There's no way we're going to be able to endure this siege. No human form of protection is enough. There's no human city fortified enough to withstand this siege. Damascus was in ruins. Samaria was leveled. The cities around Jerusalem had already been defeated that had smaller uh, city walls. At that moment, they realized no human means of protection is sufficient. 
So what Hezekiah the king and what this psalmist did in response is they did the only thing they knew how to do. And it's the exact same thing that that man did on September 11th. They dropped their they dropped to their knees, raised their hands to heaven, and prayed to the only God who could protect them. And that is what begins Psalm 46, verse 1, where the psalmist declares in the face of this siege, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is a refuge and strength. And you realize what the psalmist is doing here. What, what he's doing, his prayer is comparing and contrasting here. Human, earthly cities like Jerusalem, you know, earthly cities that could be sieged, which could be sacked, which could be destroyed. He's comparing those with the heavenly city, where the people of God dwell with God himself. And Jerusalem, you have to understand, Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it was a very well-protected city. On average... The walls of Jerusalem were approximately eight and a half feet thick. Just on average, eight and a half feet thick. Most places, the wall was over 40 feet tall. And Jerusalem was also in a mountain range, which gave it extra protection, especially against sieges. See, because if you have a fortress that's on top of a mountain, when somebody comes to siege your city, what they do is they take a bunch of dirt and they uh, put it up against the city walls. And then they'll bring up this crane that will bring back a battering ram and slam it against the city walls. Well, if your fortress, your kingdom, your city was on hills or a mountain range, it afforded you extra protection because it was too hard to get a battering ram up to hit the walls. But the psalmist realizes all of those protections, whether it be the thickness of the walls, the height of the walls, whatever, they were insufficient and they were subject to failure. You could build a city wall that was twice the thickness of Jerusalem. You could add 20 feet on to the Jerusalem walls. You could relocate Jerusalem to the Swiss Alps for all you care. None of those measures could compare to the protection and security that was afforded by God in his city in the kingdom of God. That was the only place of refuge. And you see this throughout history, don't you? That all cities, all human fortresses, all kingdoms are subject to failure. Just take the Assyrian Empire, for instance. The Assyrian Empire looked undefeatable, insuperable during the siege of Jerusalem. That same empire, just one century after their siege of Jerusalem, that same empire was overtaken by a group of Babylonian insurrectionists. And out of that came the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire, that lasted for an even shorter amount of time. They lasted for 73 years until they were overcome by the Persian Empire. Persian Empire, they lasted a little bit longer. But then, after they were overthrown by the Greeks and Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire rose up, and then the Roman Empire came out of that, and then the Byzantine Empire out of that, and then the Ottoman Empire after that, and then the British Empire after that, to the Americans today, here we are, God bless America. <laughs> but for how long? How long? Let me ask you, will... The U.S. Constitution will, the Declaration of Independence will, 
the principles of liberty and freedom actually defy the history? Will we actually be the one exception throughout history that we're going to stand? We're going to be mighty. We're going to keep our power. We're going to be the ones that can stand in the face of all human opposition. Are we going to be the ones that defy that trajectory, that history? It's not likely. It's not likely. Empire after empire, kingdom after kingdom, one after the other, building walls, building ramparts, constructing fortresses and compounds, amassing weapons and defense system. And through the course of 3,000 years, there's only been one kingdom that remains undefeated. One. One kingdom that still stands upright today. One city that has not been conquered, and it's the heavenly city. The place where God dwells himself, the place where God is king, the place where God, the almighty God of the universe, provides protection. He's the only true refuge and strength for any human being. No other worldly city can provide that kind of protection. Only God, only his kingdom. Imagine the security that comes in knowing that God reminds me of my kids and I. Uh, I don't know where Eli was. He was off. He's probably playing in a dumpster somewhere. But <laughs> me and my three girls, McLean, uh, Jane, and Annie, we went to the pool, enjoyed a nice day at the pool. We get home, and they run inside, and they get Lucy, our dog, and they come out to the front lawn where they're playing. Meanwhile, I'm trying to grab some of the stuff from the pool excursion that we just had. So I have about four towels in my hands. I have the pool bag. I have my hoodie on. I have my sunglasses on. I have a hat and my hoodie pulled over. And I'm bringing this big mass of stuff up to my garage. And I, you know, flip open the, the pin pad and I'm trying to enter the code to my garage. And out of the corner, I hear a sound that I've never heard before. It's this dull growl in this low pitch that I'd never heard before. Kind of like... It was my 22-pound cockapoo who didn't recognize who I was. And she was ready. She was ready to protect her own. Nobody was going to come between her, Jane, Annie, and McLean. Nobody. Now, in all fairness, I think I could have taken Lucy. Okay? She is just a 22-pound cockapoo. But the point is made, right? Not on Lucy's watch. Nothing will come against those whom she loves and whom she's been sent to protect. And it's at moments like that, you're actually grateful that you bought a dog. All the vomit, all the digging, all the smells, all the chewing, all the licking, all of that seems worth it because you know Lucy is here even when I'm gone. Even when I'm gone, I don't have to fear. My girls are safe. They are protected. They are not exposed. They have a refuge. They have a strength against those who mean them harm because they have one to whom will protect them. And the psalmist here, Psalm 46, prays in this deep confidence, knowing because God is here, because God is the very present help in trouble. He says, this is the conclusion, because God, therefore, we have nothing to fear. Because of God, 
Therefore, verse 2, he says, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, therefore we will not fear. We have no fear as the people of God under the protection of Almighty God. This image is striking, isn't it? You see, this is an image of creation coming completely unraveled. You turn back to Genesis chapter 1. And what you see is when God created the heavens and the earth, he followed this distinct pattern where he stitched all of creation together very purposefully. Genesis 1 verse 1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Look, look at those words employed here. Water, deep, without form, void. God creates heaven and earth, and at first there's nothing but water and darkness. There's nothing but chaos. It's just disarray, chaos, darkness, formless water. But then God begins to stitch creation together. On day one, Genesis 1, verse 3, God shines light into the darkness and he orders from the chaos day and night. You see that? Then on day two, Genesis 1-6, God separates the waters below the sea and the waters above. He's setting order to the chaos. What he's doing is he's fixing sea below, sky above. Then finally, on day three, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. The pattern is deliberate. God is taking the chaos, the water, the void, the nothingness, and he's stitching it together, separating light and darkness, sea below, sky above, and crafting the earth in distinction from the sea. And in Psalm 46, what you realize is that all of that work is becoming unraveled, completely unraveling. All of that work is undone in verse 2. You see again in verse 2 that the earth gives way, sliding back into the waters formed by God on day 3. The mountains, which in the ancient world, the mountains were thought to be pillars which held up the sky what happens to the mountains? The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, in essence, removing the separation between the sea below and the sky above on day two. And then all that's left are the dark, chaotic, empty waters roaring and foaming in formless chaos and disarray, just like they were before day one. All of creation unraveling, coming undone at the seams. Tim Keller. Tim Keller's a pastor. Uh, he recently passed away, and we have a number of his books on the book table. If you haven't read anything by Tim Keller, please pick up a book. They're free. We'd love for you to have it. Tim Keller one time had a meditation on this psalm, Psalm 46. And it was a meditation that was recorded shortly after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he said, it wasn't until after that diagnosis, it wasn't until after that news that he realized this psalm 
depicts in vivid detail where all of creation is ultimately heading. And he said, when he looks at his body after his diagnosis, his body is living proof of that reality. His body, which was fearfully and wonderfully made by God. His body, which was stitched together in his mother's womb. His body, which was formed and ordered by God, was slowly but surely coming undone at the seams. His own body producing cancerous cells that attacked living cells. And those cells metastasized into other areas to attack more living cells cells, his body was coming unraveled, being pulled apart, and his body was just a microcosm of the creation created, formed, and ordered by God, and it's just a microcosm of where everything is ultimately heading into complete disarray and complete chaos. Our bodies are simply following the course set by the rest of creation, the course of creation and every other kingdom that's been constructed and has ever been throughout history. They're all heading toward this one place, death. As I was meditating on this psalm this week and I I heard Keller's meditation, I wanted to figure out at what point in human development does your body actually start or stop growing? When does it stop forming life-giving cells that make your body grow? And I found out that for an adult male, it's age 28. At age 28, your body stops going, and it starts going, and the thought occurred to me, I'm about to turn 34. You know what that means? I've been dying for six years. Six years I've been dying, and the only thing that gave me comfort in that moment was knowing some of you have been dying for a lot longer than that. <laughs> That's why some of you who used to be 6'2 are now 5'11. Our bodies, they're simply following the course of creation, following the pattern of this world and its kingdoms. Our bodies are like the Assyrian and the British empires, they are subject to failure subject to death, chaos, and disarray. And it's because the stitches of creation are coming undone. We receive prayer cards every single week. Just this last week, we received a prayer card from a child who sat in one of our services and wrote, Dear God, my Grammy is sick. If you could help, I would love that. Because that's where creation is going. Now look at what the psalmist says. Because in Psalm 46, he has these words of confidence in the face of chaos. Even though creation and the kingdoms of this world and our bodies are literally coming undone, the psalmist says, there's nothing to fear for the follower of God. Nothing to fear for the follower of Jesus because the city of God is not the only thing for a follower of Jesus. There's another city that he speaks about in verse 4. He says, do not fear because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Amidst all the chaos going on outside in the creation, the city of man is being destroyed into decreation and chaos. And he says, do not fear 
Because there is another city, the kingdom of God, his holy habitation. And again, look at the contrast. Look at the contrast. See, Jerusalem was a formidable city. Its walls, its location, but it did have one grave weakness. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew the weakness of Jerusalem. Jerusalem did not have a fresh water supply that went through the city walls, making it completely vulnerable. So when armies would come and attack Jerusalem, it would take a long time, sometimes decades, in order to make any progress in sieging Jerusalem. So what they do, they'd set siege work. But the main tactic of taking down Jerusalem was to cut off any water supply going from the outside and coming in. If you could do that, then over the course of years and years, the water supply would dwindle down and down and down. The reserves would become empty until the inhabitants would literally die of dehydration or surrender. Those were your two options. And in fact, this was so bad. During the reign of King Hezekiah, when the Assyrian army was gathered around Jerusalem, he actually undertook this mission to build a trench work in these large uh, uh, caverns and, and tunnels underneath the city that would go and draw fresh water to bring it into the city. But even that, even that was merely a temporary solution. So if you wanted to take down Jerusalem, everyone knew it. The tactic is simple. Cut off the water. Jerusalem can't stand. It'll eventually be brought down. Contrast that to the heavenly city of Almighty God. There is no tactic that could bring down the city of God because in the middle of the city of God, there is a river whose streams make glad its inhabitants and it nourishes the people of the city of God with eternal life, eternal sustenance. There is no tactic that can bring it down because it offers eternal flourishing for all who reside within its city walls. So again, notice the contrast because this city stands for followers of Jesus. In verse five, the psalmist says, God is at the center. God is in the midst of her. While outside, you know, in the human earthly cities, the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, not the city of God. Notice what it says, she shall not be moved. The city of God cannot be moved. While human cities descend into darkness, decreation, not the city of God, God will help her when the morning dawns. Creation descends into darkness while the sun is rising on the kingdom of God. The nations rage, kingdoms totter. They try to destroy the kingdom of God and assail themselves against the city of God, but God simply speaks. All he has to do is speak and look what happens. When God speaks, the earth melts at the sound of his voice. Look at the protection. What is there to fear in this city, the city of Almighty God? Tim Keller, again, in his meditation, he makes this point. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you follow him and trust in him as your fortress and your refuge, you are actually a citizen of both kingdoms. You're a citizen of the kingdom of this world. Many of us here, we have our citizenship in the United States, our citizenship in Colorado. We, have, we are citizens of the city of man, but our true, 
Our eternal citizenship is in a city that cannot be touched, cannot be destroyed. We have citizenship in the kingdom of God. And if that's the case, friends, do not be fooled. Don't be fooled as citizens here. In the kingdoms of this world, we are subject to every threat, every trial, every hardship, and every sin that can possibly come against humanity. Which means as citizens of this world, our bodies, our bodies and our lives will be subject to the course of creation. We will be subject to mourning. We will be subject to tears. We'll be subject to pain, illness, plague. We're subject to heartache, miscarriage, MRI appointments, CAT scans, oncologist appointments, depression, sin, death. As John Newton, right, the author of Amazing Grace, uh, one of his opening stanzas of that hymn, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Because that is what it looks like to walk through the kingdoms and the cities of this world. Dangers, toils, and snares are be to, ex- to be expected. But notice the stark difference. As followers of Jesus, we do not just follow the course of the world. We follow a new course, the course of Jesus. By grace, through faith in Jesus, we have dual citizenship. By grace, God has made us citizens truly in the kingdom of heaven, a city with a river of eternal life whose streams make glad the city of God. And if that's true, if we have an eternal Home, then there's a second stanza. It doesn't just end at trials, toils, and snares. Newton says, but for a follower of Jesus, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, we shall possess within the veil a home of joy and peace. That is the new Course That is the new city reserved for those who embrace Jesus as their fortress and their refuge. As dual citizens, we don't follow the course of creation alone. We now follow the course of Jesus, the king of the city of God, who stepped into the city of man and made himself subject to every threat, every trial, every hardship, who suffered even the agony and the darkness of crucifixion for human sin, so that we, following his course, might, like him, raise again from the dead to newness of life and have eternal life that cannot be taken, cannot be destroyed in the city of God. Death, decreation, chaos, That was not the final outcome for Jesus. He was raised again to eternal life where he now reigns as king of the kingdom of God. And we will follow his course. And if this mortal life shall cease, we shall possess within the veil a kingdom of joy and peace. That's what you can see in verse 7. Right? If you follow Jesus, then you alone can say, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And Jesus, the King of the kingdom of God, 
But there is a time coming, and this is what's depicted as this psalm reaches its conclusion. There's a time coming when these two kingdoms, the kingdom and the cities of man and the city of God, they will separate at one point. And they will become fixed realities. And you will find yourself in one of these two cities. You will either follow the course of creation to death and destruction, or you will follow the course set by Jesus into the city of the living and almighty God. And that's what's depicted in verse 8. As the psalm comes to a conclusion, the psalmist prays, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. It's almost as if this psalmist, he's standing on the, the walls of the city of God, looking down at the inhabitants of the city of God. And he's saying, come, look, look outside. Look at what happened to the creation. Look at what happened to the city of man. Look down at what befalls those who do not find refuge in the living God. And notice what he says, verse eight, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. And he burns the chariots with fire. He's saying, behold, come, look, that's what's going to happen. One day, these two kingdoms will separate eternally. A day is coming when God himself will enter in and he will put an end to every possible enemy, every possible threat, every possible toil and trial that can come against the citizens of his city. He will utterly destroy them. He will bring them to dust. He will break the bow, crack the spear, burn their chariots with fire. Nothing will stand. Only the kingdom and city of Almighty God. God himself in that city will dwell eternally with his children, with the citizens of his kingdom. And the psalmist is saying, look, that day is coming. Look how beautiful and good it is when God will reign. And you know, it's really beautiful uh, what the psalmist invites us to look at or imagine here. John, who was a follower of Jesus, who followed the course of Jesus, he actually got to saw, see with his two eyes this very reality which is to come. When the city of man will fall and the city of God will be exalted, he actually saw in his book, the book of Revelation. And as that book comes to a close in Revelation chapter 18, he depicts this figure known as Babylon, which is indicative of the city of man. And here's what he says. He says, I looked and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's becoming, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of its sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice coming out of heaven saying, come out of her. 
The voice from heaven calling, come out of the city of man. Come out of Babylon. Come find refuge. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaping high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And then as that angel falls to the background, another mighty angel takes up a stone, like a great millstone, And threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down in violence into the heart of the sea. And will be found no more. There's a day coming when God will destroy the city of man and he will destroy every threat that could possibly come against his heavenly city. All mourning, all loss, all grief, all pain, all cancerous cells will be removed and God's kingdom will stand secure. And as John finishes his book, he has one more vision of another city and he says, And I saw a new holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who's seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And that angel then brings John to the middle of this heavenly city. And he says, he showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The river that makes glad the city of God will be there for the taking for those who followed the course of Jesus. And they will drink and they will be nourished unto eternal life. I can't read those closing scenes of Revelation without thinking of the movie Les Miserables. My wife, Hannah, because I love the movie so much, she says, you are only allowed one Les Miserables illustration a year. (laughs) So here it comes. If you know the story, Jean Valjean lived a hard life, imprisoned for years unjustly, suffering through poverty, suffering through sickness, suffering through pain and torment. And in his closing hours, as his body is slowly giving way to death, he's surrounded by his daughter, Cosette, and his son-in-law, Marius. And at that moment, as his body is about to give way, as he's about to die and go the course of creation, he's visited by Fontaine. Fontaine, who was this prostitute whom he had saved off the street. Fontaine, who was already dead and had passed off into God's eternal city. She comes and visits him. Fontaine is sent by God to carry Valjean away from the city of man, prone to darkness, death, and chaos, and carry him in, finally, to his eternal resting place in the city of God. And she comes and she wraps her arms around Valjean and she sings, come with me where chains will never bind you into the city of God. All your grief at last, at last behind you. 
you'll be robed in heaven and crowned with his mercy. And at that moment, she wipes away the tears from Javel Jean's eyes. And she leads him into God's eternal kingdom where he meets God face to face. And the only thing missing from that ending are the words that God himself will speak to all of those who follow the course of Jesus. And they're the closing verses of Psalm 46, when God himself will speak to his saints who followed him, be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth and we will respond as his people. Finally, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, eternal Son, life-giving Spirit, we thank you, we praise you. We give you all glory, honor, and majesty because that is what heaven, what your city is doing right now. All, all of your heavenly creatures are falling before your throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because you are the one who is, the one who came, and the one who is to come. Your city will one day stand eternal, God. And we look forward to that day when we will hear your voice, when you will tell us to be still. Do not fear. Even though the world and this creation is coming undone, you will stand, your heavenly Jerusalem will stand, and we will enter in with you. We will be refreshed by the river of life and we will behold you face to face. And God, give us hearts that long for that day. Many of us now are struggling with sin, we're struggling with sickness, we're struggling in all ways, Lord, and, and we need to believe that this is true. And we confess to you, we believe, help our unbelief. And God, we pray, bring that day, bring your kingdom now on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all to you, God, our Father, who protects us in the name of Jesus, the eternal Son, by the power of your Spirit given to us until your return. Amen.